Welcome to Filmstrip and our American Ninja series. Ninja? What the hell are ninja? Featuring Ron. Hey! We don't stop till one of us goes down. Now! Let's go! And Jay. Who is he? I don't know. He's a new recruit. I don't even know his name. He possesses great skills. These podcasts will be spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and details of the films. And if a word of this gets out, I'll have you shot. You understand? Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I am Ron. This is our review of American Ninja, starring Michael Dudikoff, Steve James, John Fujioka, and Judy Aronson, directed by Sam Furstenberg, released in 1985 on an estimated budget of a million dollars. They spent a million dollars on this. I don't know where it went. It grossed $10.4 million at the box office. Now, we're going to get into American Ninja, but first things first, Ron, welcome to Filmstrip and Continuous Play. Tell us, folks, a little bit about yourself and you know, the kind of stuff you like and why we are reviewing the American Ninja series because this is your idea. Yes. No one will <laughs> no believe but me. Uh, well, my name is Ron, obviously. Uh, I'm the American correspondent for denofgeek.com, which is the British uh, pop culture nerd website. Uh, I'm the owner of popfi.com, which is where I basically write about weird stuff or things that entertain me personally and I hope other people dig it. Uh, I've been working in a variety of movie review-based websites and a couple of podcasts and lots of failed projects since the late 90s. And I've always wanted to be on a podcast, so time to check off a thing on the old bucket list. <laughs> also proof that if you if you will banter back and forth enough with me on Twitter, I will drag you onto a show. Because, because that's how Nick got on the show. That's ultimately how Kurt got on the show. <laughs> And, that, and that's you. So I'd never be afraid to engage with myself or Brian on the on the social media. But now, you know, we talked about hey, let's do a podcast, and I said, okay, you know, here's some stuff we're thinking about doing, or if you got something else, bring it up. And you went to American Ninja, and I said, okay, I got to know why. Oh man, well, my childhood consisted of watching a whole bunch of those garbage Golan Globus canon films movies on television, you know, your Chuck Norris's, your Michael Dudikoff's, your David Bradley's, your Sasha Mitchell's. Yeah. And dare we forget <laughs> Sasha. <laughs> well, no, I mean, he yeah. is the kick, he is the uh, kickboxer. <laughs> yeah, he's, he is the kickboxer. This is true. So. <laughs> and one of the things that has like stuck with me for probably tw- 25 years is the idea of ninjas Growing up in the 80s, there was just ninjas everywhere. And if a movie had ninjas in it, I was right there ready to watch it. From, you know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles to, like, the Nintendo games, like Ninja Gaiden and Ninja Warriors. And I've I've had this memory for a long time, and it took me forever to figure out where it was coming from. And it was this vivid image of a training montage of ninjas dressed in these primary color... Crayola uniforms <laughs> trying to kill some random white dude. And as it turns out, it's an American Ninja memory. That sounds like the spec script that got this made. Random ninjas trying to kill some random white dude. So 
Uh, I will say this. Uh, and before we get into what I know about American Ninja, uh, Golden Globus, I do know. It's hard not to be a fan of especially 80s cinema and not know canon films. And, folks, we have reviewed a canon film before in our Continuous Play Lexicon. Brian and I did Superman for the Quest for Peace, which can totally be blamed on the fact that Life Force was a complete disaster and there weren't enough Chuck Norris movies to fund the Superman movie. So that's what they came up with. But you're right. I mean, look, I was a fan of the Golden Globus lexicon, too. Invasion USA. Maybe someday we'll come around to that one. It's been a long time since Rostov, it's time to die. But I remember that one vividly. And I think I've seen part of some of this before. But I, I'm honest. It's rare to find something I really have no connection to at all. And you did it. Because I was like, I really, if I saw American Ninja, I blocked it from my memory. You talk about movies with ninjas. And the first thing that popped in my head today, the kind of stuff I watch, I'm like, oh, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 4? Because, you know, the kid, the kid with the nunchucks and the karate. So, oh, that's right. Yeah. And, and, of course, Karate Kid. I, you know, I think that's a lot to do with it. that and the Chuck Norris uh, legacy. But, yeah, and if it weren't for the, the few Bruce Lee movies I've seen, which I'll say now, I've seen more biopics about the life and death of Bruce Lee than I've seen Bruce Lee movies. Because um, I think there may have been more of those than he actually made. Well, um, he only made like four or five movies. So yeah. It's not hard to... Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I, I didn't know much about this, but Michael Dudikoff's a face that if you've seen it, you never forget it. And I think a lot of this is something that uh, certainly struck memories in me. But, yeah, you're uh, we are definitely in um, the action ghetto. <laughs> but, but that's not always a bad thing. That can be fun. I I do recall some of those missing, missing in action films being a lot of fun, even if they were a little ridiculous. Yeah, a, a little ridiculous is a great way to describe this movie. <laughs> yeah. Or a lot of ridiculous. Well, depending on how, how you want to look at it. But I guess before we get any further into it, Ron, since this is your grand idea, and as I tend to do this with uh, new people, you bring up something on the show, cool. You get to summarize it. So please tell us what American Ninja is all about. Okay. Uh, Private Joe Armstrong is played by... The legendary Michael Dudikoff is a man with a mysterious past. He doesn't know where he's from, where he was born, and he's not even sure of his real name. Uh, he was found on an island, and after a bit of trouble with the law, he's enlisted in the U.S. Army to be shipped off to some anonymous country being played by the Philippines. <laughs> uh, once there, he, under, he uncovers a, an armed smuggling arrangement in which the villainous Ortega steals shipments from the army while <laughs> Sergeant Ronaldo and Colonel Hitchcock look the other way. Ortega has a private army of dudes in pith helmets and a secret cadre of ninjas led by the evil Black Star Ninja, which I think is the only name he has. Mm -hmm. So it's up to Joe and the mysterious water gardener who trained him in the ways of the ninja to stop Ortega, break up the arms smuggling scheme, Save Colonel Hitchcock's lovely daughter, Patricia. <laughs> and along the way, there are many, many, many ninja fights. <laughs> I think that's about as good as you could get. Yes, that's a good summary. Matter of fact, that's more coherent than half of what I think I saw. <laughs> um, 
Oh, we're going to get into all of it. It's it, There's a lot here. Now, we should tell folks, too, should you want to view American Ninja? Obviously, we're going to be spoiler heavy, like we say in our credit sequence. So if you want to watch this before we go any further with it, you don't have to rent it. You don't have to buy it. Go to YouTube. Nobody's even claiming domain on it anymore, folks. They're all there. The whole four-part series. So <laughs> go enjoy yourself. Unless you get infatuated with what Wikipedia tells you, the fifth installment in this is not a real American Ninja film. We're not doing that one. It's just the four. So if you want to watch this, you can watch it. And I will say now that is exactly how I consumed this was through YouTube. Oh, that's that's how I discovered what movie I was thinking about all those years. <laughs> uh, it's I was like, all right, let's look at some random movies. I've got nothing better to do. And I went to um, the Reddit, the subreddit, full movies on YouTube, mm-hmm. which shout out to them. And somebody had posted it as a full movie on YouTube. And I was like, oh, I got nothing better to do. I, I love 1985. Let's watch this thing. <laughs> and magic happened. Yes. 1985, a seminal year for film. So many great things. American Ninja among them. So and I think that's what we could say. But, so so many great mustaches. Oh, and so little time. We'll get we'll get to Jackson's mustache. I got I got words about that, but uh, <laughs> and the Fred Williamson esque way he tries to play that role. But um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I you know I, I I was struck by something immediately when it started. Of course, the Canon logo you can't miss that when you see it. But the music, and I actually wrote down in my notes, Ron. Oh my, the Golden Globus films just had a sheen all their own when it came to the score. I don't know. What what you call it, but it it only fits their movies. It's like the quintessential mix of the A team and like bad eighties techno. Yeah, I said uh, <laughs> in my notes I described it as great fake A team music. <laughs> yes, and that's exactly what it is. It's the best you can get for two hundred dollars in a synthesizer in nineteen eighty five. It's I'm not convinced that one of the actors didn't just do this on the side. You know, I mean, uh, uh, it was probably it was probably Michael Dudikoff. He's a man of many talents. <laughs> this is true. Later on in this fall, we're going to be covering Halloween. I'll get to talk about John Carpenter's, uh, you know, scores and things like that. This is not quite on the same level, but it does it does have a a, a ring to its own, and it introduces to this. And I love how we're just thrown right into this thing too. That's what kills me about this is we meet. You know, Joe, and you called him Joe Armstrong. I'm like, did he get a last name? I missed that because I was sitting there the whole time going, this guy has no, he's like the man with no name, but he's a karate dude instead of the gunfighting Westerner. And the first time we meet him, he's playing with a butterfly knife. Now, I've known a lot of people that have been in the military, even in the 80s, right? And none of them played with, the only posers flew around with butterfly knives. Yeah, I remember that being a big thing as a child, the uh, plastic butterfly knife Yeah, back, back when you could have toys that looked like real weapons mm-hmm. and trying to learn how to do all those cool butterfly knife, flip it open and flip it back shut kind of things and yeah, pinching my hand repeatedly. Oh, yes. Yes. Many times. I even had the uh, the switchblade comb. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a and- classic. And like every idiot, I tried to put a real blade in it. When it flung it out, I realized that was a, a different kind of weapon. So this is also the '80s, though. When you could go to the fair, like I think South Park spoofed this, and you could actually buy like actual ninja, you know, weapons and stab each other in the face with it. All oh, the '80s were a different time, but 
I'm yeah. pretty sure that's that's where they got their ninja props later. That I I wouldn't doubt that they won them on a couple of good fastballs. Maybe Dudikoff won them on the, on the weekend break. But <laughs> I mean, this is the whole the whole. I mean, there's no setup at all. Like we're just thrown right in. There's you get this guy who's the loner, and they're going to make the shipment. They're going to drop the shipment. I'm like, okay, I don't know what the military's doing here, but that's fine. And then we get the random commandos who hijack the convoy. Yeah, in, in the most blatant. You're going to be robbed set up, I think I've ever seen. Uh, yes. Like, we're building this – they have this heavy construction equipment, and they're on a – it's basically like a dirt road almost. I don't, I'm not sure what they were supposed to have been doing there, but, uh, I mean, clearly the military bought it. Well, yeah, it, isn't that part of the deal that we learned later on? The sergeant's in on all of this, and, of course, so is the, the base commander, too. So they're getting set up from the beginning. But we don't know that until, you know, two-thirds of the way through the film. So at this point, it just seems like really poor government planning. And it's like they got robbed on the way to Mr. Miyagi's in uh, Karate Kid 2. I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> that's what it looked like to me. Oh, Yeah. Uh, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, it's, it's it's this random shooting, and I, I had this whole thought because I've just come off of Star Wars with Kurt, and you know we made a big deal about the the stormtrooper lack of aim and things like that, and I said these guys are the pro like the prototypical of that because they can't hit anything. Now, granted, they're firing Uzis, which is a spray and pray weapon anyway, but they, I mean they couldn't hit anything. I think they scared everybody to death when they shot anybody in this thing. Well, that might have been the point. I think the. <laughs> The deal was they weren't supposed to actually injure anyone, and then Joe just starts murdering people with uh, car repair equipment. Oh, yes, that's the thing. That's when you know immediately, like, if there was any question as to who the American ninja is, oh, it's answered real fast. If it wasn't for the butterfly knife and the, you know, the super gel hairdo, it's when he starts killing people with random farm equipment and, like, catching arrows with his hand and breaking them and stuff like that. I'm like, okay. Yeah. Oh, that, that was my favorite shot because he just breaks the arrow with such a derisive expression on his face. It's like... He's just kind of disgusted that they shot an arrow at him because clearly he's the American ninja and cannot be killed with conventional weapons. Right. Well, and what's even funnier is that the other ninja is actually afraid of this. I'm like, you got more arrows. Keep coming. <laughs> Let's test that theory. Let's see how good the average is. And the whole thing is they seem to be harassing this woman, Patricia, the you know, who I know as one of the many kills in uh, Friday the 13th the final chapter. And I think she's been in some other stuff, too. But that... that that voice, man. I was like, you're either that or you're the chick from Halloween three. I don't know which one. When I looked her up, I was like, Oh, you're that one. Okay. And so I, I was like, well, why do they want her? Like nothing is explained. And that's the thing about action films. And I had to remind myself, I'm in the eighties. I'm in the eighties action film. They don't explain any of this. The, the entire walk and talk of the film is to explain it to me. So I had to remind myself, you know, what kind of movie I was watching here. Right. This is the eighties. It's golden Globus. We spent all the budget on cocaine. This is just <laughs> this is just what we're gonna have. Yeah, yeah and, and squibs because there's lots of those too. So they're gonna go off on anybody else. But yeah, I don't know. I, I love this. But here's the thing that got me: like the, when the ninjas got the the sergeant up against the wall, and he's like, "Who is that guy? He's got skills." I'm like, "Since when did ninjas talk? I thought that was the point." You know, <laughs> I was like, "Snake Eyes doesn't talk. What's up with that?" I think Storm Shadow talks, though. Storm Shadow always talks, but that's because he's the bad ninja. So well, maybe that's, that's, well, that's what it is. Yeah. This is the bad... That would explain why Joe has, like, ten lines in the whole movie, and they're all, like, monosyllables. Well, that's, I, 
I got the other reason that Joe's got ten lines in the whole movie, but we'll get there. So <laughs> I don't think it's got anything to do with him being a ninja. But yeah, I, I love Black Star Ninja. And that, I think that is how he's credited in the film, which is funny to me. And we know that because he has a little Black Star like jailhouse tattoo below his right eye. <laughs> you know, that's how they got him. And I'm going to tell you. I, I don't know who this actor is, knowing from nothing else, but th- if that's him really talking and they didn't dub that in, that's even more offensive. Like, you, that guy, is, it's every bad uh, Asian-American stereotype in film ever. Yeah, he's pretty... Uh, everybody in this movie sounds kind of weird, but he he's one of the uh, the most spectacular ones. Oh, by far. It's it's really strange. But he does get us into it. And I'll say this. The one thing about Golden Globus films I always did like, they didn't waste any time getting to the shoot 'em up Like, oh, it's, no. it's right out of the gate. We're going to blow stuff up. You don't know what's happening. And so I, I, they drop a line in there, though, which is it, – you know, interesting for me is that it's the third time we've been hit. And I was like, nice security, guys. And the part of me is like, okay, no, wait a minute. I know it's the 80s, it's the Reagan 80s. We're relatively peaceful. You know, there's no wars, really. There's little skirmishes here and there. It's not like today. I mean, it's it's hard to think about it in a post-9-11 world, what the 80s was like. But having grown up in it, I remember this. And you would assume that, well, that could probably happen because there were such lax problems in the military at the time. There, I mean, it was like a national story. So it, this may seem really off to people who watch it now, but it's not entirely too far from what could have actually gone down back then. And I think this was during the whole, uh, not too far after or during the whole Iran-Contra thing where we were secretly selling arms to uh, the Contras in Nicaragua. Yes. So I, throughout the, as I was taking my notes, I just kept calling um, the Colonel Oliver North. <laughs> I honestly, I thought about Contra, too, in a part of this. But, I, yeah, I think that it's all part of the times. It's, I'm sure when they were putting this together, Golan and Globus were like, yeah, we, we sell arms in the Middle East. It's, it's all dirty, dirty politics. But man will have a change of heart. We have a pretty girl. American Ninja. You know, I, mean, I think that, yeah. that's probably the production meeting. We made all that money with Enter the Ninja and Revenge of the Ninja. We got to spend it on something. Exactly. Let's just get more ninjas. Let's just go back to ninjas. Don't we have some ninja costumes left? Yes, let's go back to ninjas. But I love how, though, you know, Joe goes and rescues Patricia. And, of course, they're running through the jungle. And, you know, he stops to rip her skirt up to turn it into shorts and chop off her shoes. And I'm like right out of romancing the stone. Do you remember that? Uh, yeah, I- <laughs> Said so in my notes, I described it as a the meat cute begins when he breaks the heels off of her shoes and cuts open her skirt, and then it becomes romancing the stone with ninjas. Exactly, That's exactly what it feels like. That's exactly how it plays, but without the charisma, uh, you know, or acting ability, or the cleverness. Yeah, or the plot. There's none of that, but it is romancing the stone with ninjas. I'm sure that was part of the discussion, too. And you get the feeling that's what they told Judy Aronson to play it like, because she starts coming onto this dude, like, fast. Like, she's, you know, washing her clothes off in the jungle rain or whatever, and I'm like, that escalated quickly. (laughs) And she's going, ain't it funny how we're out here with no clothes on? I'm like, yes, that's quite funny. (laughs) Well, can can you blame her once she gets a look at those Dudikoff abs? It's it's 
what what mortal could stand a chance against that? I, uh, no one. <laughs> I dare say yes. They, the man is chiseled. Let's say that. I don't know how big a dude he really is. I imagine he's not very you know large, but he's ripped for what he's got. Like he's a he's a ripped dude. We got to talk about him for a minute, okay? Because I, I teased it already. Um, his acting, if we want to call it that, what would you say it's channeling? I'm like somewhere between dead eyes and um, a computer. It's sort of how he plays it. Yeah, it was. It was. It was like I just. I just. Uh, <laughs> oh man, uh, that's a good one. I would say it was kind of uh, dead eyes is a good description. Um, he stood around with his mouth slightly open a lot, mm-hmm. so he kind of looked like a confused animal. <laughs> Just that had just like he had just wandered in onto this film set, and all of a sudden people were yelling at him to say words, and he just has that deer in the headlights, uh, kind of you know, helpless child expression. There's that, and there's the "I'm too cool for the room" thing that he's got going on. Like he's one of the other T-birds in Greece too, or something. <laughs> I mean, he's kind of got that hairstyle, and that seems to be how he walks around the set. Oh yeah, I, I have no doubt. Uh, I also liked that he kind of sounded like uh, I, Joe Pesci if you neutered Joe Pesci. <laughs> I thought about that. In, in his kind of in his delivery, it's just kind of hey, it's kind of lackadaisical, <laughs> but he's got this v- kind of higher pitched voice. Hey, I'm a ninja. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's kind of that. Yeah, it's I don't know. It's really it's really strange because he does his job. He saves the girl. He you know defends against the ninja attack or whatever. And they're gonna court martial him. Like for what? <laughs> yeah. I I would say it's a it's a criminal lack of uh, of uh, charisma. <laughs> and, and there's absolutely no chemistry between him and, and Judy Aronson. Oh, no. It's it's like he he has she has more chemistry with uh, Curtis, who we meet later in the movie, uh, and who is also a much better actor and a much better better martial artist. I would agree. Steve James, Curtis Jackson, much better person. When he comes into the story, it's it's much cooler. He comes in in the second act because that's what that's what kind of gets me is this guy does his job. Like he, what he's supposed to do, he does, he defends, he makes everybody's life better, and they all hate him. And I'm like, I get it, people died, but they're like, isn't that the idea? Like they're like mad because he killed the enemy. I'm like, isn't that kind of what you're supposed to do if you're in the military? I mean, I know that's rather rudimentary of me to say, and maybe a little redactive, but come on. Well, I was thinking the whole time they're really mad at this guy, but he didn't actually shoot any of those people. Yeah, like. He just returned, like, a uh, non-gunpowder-based fire at them. He threw sharp implements of destruction at them all. So, like, at some point, some commanding officer should be like, hey, maybe this guy's, you know, better than just a driver on the convoy. Well, I mean, he did kill a guy with a screwdriver, and he possibly killed a guy with, like, a a four-way lug wrench. Yes. I couldn't, was, tell, I couldn't tell if it killed him or just severely injured him, but it was a bad time for that guy. Yeah, getting hit with that would not be a good day. That's that's for sure. That's That was a rough gig. But that's the thing. That, and I think with the whole first act is to set this guy up as the loner hero that the outsider no one knows anything about. He just goes by Joe. You know, and he's just that, my name is Joe. 
And I'm like, man, is it, is it one letter? I mean, how did he, did he sign with an X? I mean, you know, we don't know this guy. I, anything about him. And I, I love how we cut from him to the other totally autonomous villain with his own ninja camp. <laughs> Ortega. I'm like, okay, every, I mean, you know, I'm watching this, I'm going, yes, it's a South American type, drug lord type, uh, Latino evil. (laughs) That's what we're looking at here. He's the, uh, the poor man's Ricardo Montalban. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) With the, with the white suit and the kind of puffy hair. I had never thought Ricardo Montalban, but that brings Fantasy Island into a whole new context. Yeah, the whole time I was thinking, it's like, well, this is obviously evil Fantasy Island, and his fantasy was to have a, a drug cart, uh, arms and ninjas. Yeah, so like, what we're getting is they're stealing, his gig is they steal military equipment, resell it on the black market, then turn around and put it into the drug empire, right? So it's like double-level investing. Yeah, I think so. It was some kind of... He's selling the, the he's selling the equipment and maybe some of the money is going to the the rebels. There's talk of rebels later on. I'm not sure who who's rebelling against who. I do, but, yeah, uh, I, I don't get a sense of one because they don't explain it. Like you said in the plot summary, it's a country played by the Philippines. We don't really know what you know San Sebald or whatever we're in here. Like if it's the same country that Schwarzenegger had to invade in Commando or you know what what it is. And I actually wrote down in my list. Please ask Ron what evil plan is because I'm not really sure I'm 40 minutes into this and I don't really get it other than just make money and I'm like well isn't that always evil's plan yeah, I, I think that was it I think they were like well this guy is gonna sell arms to bad guys I mean this guy's clearly a bad guy because he's brought his own toady um, <laughs> and his goal is four million dollars he says it several times yeah. and that seems to be his only motivation I know, and I'm, I'm like, not, Four million dollars. It's like a magic number for something. Yeah, but you couldn't even you can't take care of all those ninjas with only four million dollars. There are like hundreds of ninjas. Not even in nineteen eighty five. Not even in the strict uh, world of ninjadom. I don't think you could get by with four million. I agree. I think that's that seemed like a number that they threw out there, but it wasn't it wasn't real at all. Like I I didn't I, I don't know. It was very strange that they kept dropping the four million. Like it seems like somebody in the production house was like, you gotta keep reminding people how much this is all worth because that would seem like a lot of money because thirteen year old boys are gonna be the only people that watch this and. So that was like a lot of money to them. So, I mean, I don't know. I'm just guessing, but that's kind of what it sounds like. So we, we cut back to Joe, and now we, we of course, as with in every hero's journey in the 80s, right, you have to have one of their future friends be their enemy to begin with, right? And that's Joe versus Curtis Jackson. Yeah, the the, the much more charismatic, much friendlier, I would much rather watch a movie starring this guy, uh Curtis Jackson, who is like, unlike Joe, who is kind of like a blank slate or uh, like a, not offensive, but, you know, brusque cool. Yeah. This is a dude that everybody seems to love this guy. Well, how could you not? He's cool. I mean, he's a cool African-American man. He talks cool. He's big. He's tall. He can do martial arts. And he talks trash. Because when he gets into a fight with Joe, he's like, look, come on, let me see what you got. No, we don't, you know, Joe puts him down on the ground. He's like, hey, we don't quit till one of us is done. And I'm like, man, yeah. That, and you know what? I, I was like, well, that's right out of uh, uh, 
uh, officer and a gentleman, you know, Richard Gere and uh, Lou Gossett Jr. Boy, that's a totally different dynamic this time around. But I'm like, man, is there not an 80s film these people haven't ripped off yet? It's only 85, and they've hit two big ones already. Romancing the Stone and Officer and a Gentleman. Yeah, and they just don't stop. It well, just, all, all we it, needed it, was a Joe Cocker. Going. All we needed was a Joe Cocker song to tap that whole scene off, and it would have been <laughs> perfect. But well, I love how they they wrestle like in. It's supposed to be like outside of a barracks. That's about as much yard as you know I had out. I have out in front of my apartment. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where these guys are stationed, but it's pretty sad. You know? And you kind of get the feeling like they rolled up somewhere and said, "Look, everybody, jump out. We're going to shoot here for an hour." Because it's broad, there's no lights. It's all broad daylight, you know. And we're just, and then they got ran off. You're like, what are you doing? <laughs> so, but I do like the fight. I will say this. You know, I, I know Michael Dudikoff is is a martial artist and stuff like that. But he he plays it so stiff. Steve James has a lot more grace in his movements. I thought I, I actually dug him as a as a martial arts performer. Yeah, he's like like I said in the beginning. He's a much better cinema fighter. His movements are a lot smoother. Uh, Michael Dudikoff looks like he's bumbling his fight choreography in his head as he's doing it. Like, okay, high punch here. Uh, now low punch, uh, block this guy, throw him over my shoulder. You know, mm-hmm. it, it looks like he, he was being fed his, his, uh, what he was supposed to do in the various fights, like through an earpiece. And there was like a half second delay between when they told him what to do and when he started to do it. Oh yeah, I, it, it seems so off off center the way these two guys fight. But the whole purpose of it again is the two good guys to act like enemies but earn respect trope. You know that's that's what they're supposed to do with each other. And then now that now they become like best buddies. Like they're walking around, they're hanging out. Uh, Jackson's telling him to you know go ahead and go after Patricia. Of course, that's always the let's go after the boss's daughter, right? It's because you know she's not going to be attracted to anybody normal. She's going to go after the loner loser ninja of the group. Right. I mean, he did save her from some random uh, Filipino day laborers. That's <laughs> it's pretty. It's pretty clear that that's, you know, instant love. Of course. And um, the only thing it didn't have, it didn't have a good song. There was there was no good love music in this. And I was I guess that got cut in the budget, but they couldn't even get any like, you know, fourth-rate 80s ballad band to come up with something. Like there wasn't like a Survivor knockoff group working at the time that could have done a tune for them. I don't know. I I was looking for something a little bit more with that. Well, they did have uh, like a string flare and they did have some pianos, and I think there was even a saxophone. So that's kind of the height of what you can expect from the love theme of American Ninja. <laughs> True. Yeah, I don't. I don't think anybody's rushing out to buy the, the soundtrack to it or whatever. You, you mean you don't have it on on a big album? I, I do not have the LP of this, and I don't think my older brother does either. But I'm going to ask him the next time I see him. So, <laughs> but, okay, but I, I, it came with my laser disc, of course. <laughs> The expanded director's cut, of course. But uh, I love how Joe is also a stunt bike rider once the, you know everything starts going down at the base, too. And I actually wrote him, I said, I said this thing has become like a live-action live Contra. You remember that video game, the side-scroller? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Like, this is Contra. This is what this, it feels like missing in action, Contra all got together. Like, they threw, like, well, could we have a ninja film, but everybody's got to pick up guns at some time and just start shooting stuff. Oh, right. And that, that ends up... Uh... Being that ends up leading to one of our big uh, 
Is that the setup to one of the car chases? Yes, one of the many yeah. car chases. Yeah, the the big the vehicle stunt course, as I called it, that the base becomes. <laughs> so for See, some reason, so uh, it's, and it's, it's great how they leave those motorcycle friendly ramps right by the wall. Oh, I know, and there's always like random you know gas cans to run into and blow stuff up with. So because uh, it does, they're just laying around you know the military base where there's live ammunition going off every five seconds. So, but I, I love how the ninjas come in for the kill. And Joe takes every one of them out. I'm like, dude is a Jedi. <laughs> you know, and nobody knows it. Like he he is at this point, he is he has taken out at least a dozen people. And all he gets in return is more threatening for a court martial. Oh, of course. I I, I did like um how they kind of counterbalanced the uh fight with Joe and uh, Curtis to the scene of uh, Black Star Ninja and his people like showing off their skills. Yes. Uh, I, I described Black Star Ninja as uh, Japanese Charles Bronson. Ah, oh, good call. Yeah. Because he's got kind of that scowl face. And it's funny, in one of that, that fella's other roles, I looked him up on IMDb just a few minutes ago, and in a 1979 uh, Kung Fu movie, or actually 1975, he plays a character named Bronson Lee in a movie <laughs> called Bronson Lee Champion. And then there's a sequel, uh, Ching Fa, where he's also Bronson Lee. So I'm not the only person who says that guy looks like Charles Bronson. And I'm, that makes me feel better. I'm sure someone at Golden Globe has thought that, too. That's probably why he's in the thing. It's, it's certainly not for his acting ability, but now he by far is, I mean, he's the real thing. If that's really him performing the ninja moves, he's pretty good. I'll say that. I mean, it's, it's what I expect when I think 80s ninja, the way that he goes around and the way his crew works. Oh right, yeah he he is he's pretty he's pretty phenomenal and the uh, the gar- the ninja gardener later on is also pretty good despite yes. being 112 years old. <laughs> well, we, well, I'll talk about Ninja Gardener in a second because before that we got to talk about how Joe learns about the ninja camp. He climbs onto the truck and like in Indiana Jones style, right? He ride or actually more like Robert De Niro in the remake of Cape Fear style. He rides on the underneath of the oh, truck. Yeah. The whole what is it? 12 miles, 5 miles, 12 feet between the, between the evil base and the army base. I think they're just, you know, it was just right next door. Yeah, it was like so right was across like the a, bridge. Yeah. You know, like a good 15 minute, you know, pleasure drive. Yeah. So. Except you're hanging on to the underneath of a deuce and a half. Which, of course, every everyone can just do. You know, especially the American. Oh yeah, that's that's what they're designed for. Yeah. They're they're designed for people to ride under them there's and so then many... leap out and surprise ninjas. Right, there's so many places for you to hold on to. I mean, that's just what I just kept thinking. I was like, this is a government vehicle built on bid. There ain't nothing extra on that thing at all. There's not even cushions in the seats. All right, so <laughs> you know, I, was, I I laughed at that, but again, I thought, well, okay, now that's another great '80s movie we're gonna rip off, Raiders of the Lost. Sure. Why not? Let's go ahead. We're doing it. Let's just go for it. So I, all I was waiting for was for the ninjas to come out with lightsabers at the end. Then the circle would have been complete. But I don't get that. So they, they didn't they have the budget for that this time around. Maybe in part four. I, I don't know how far it goes. But Well, that, they did have the uh, ninja magic. Yes. Later oh, on. So Yes. And okay, this is a good time to talk about the old gardener guy, the water gardener guy, because he introduces a lot of the the mystical element of the film, I would say. Um 
I think you called him. Uh, he's connected to Joe, and all I actually wrote down was like, let me guess. He trained him off the streets. Because they asked Joe, like, where'd you learn those moves? And he keeps saying the same thing, the streets. And I'm like, what, Sesame Street? What street is this dude from? <laughs> so it's like, this is not a I, – I knew people that grew up, you know, tough like that. They didn't look like this dude. They may have been as built. They may have been, you know, just as strong. They didn't look like this guy. So you don't, you don't get to look like that on the streets. And you don't learn that on the streets either. Uh, maybe it's the, the street that Bruce Lee was born on. I don't know. The old gardener comes in. And I actually wrote down in my notes, this is the time when Yoda shows up to explain the plot to us. Because <laughs> <laughs> I just felt like that's who this guy was supposed to be. Well, he's a little bald dude with some crazy facial hair. It's pretty appropriate. Who, who is connected to the loner hero that we don't know much about, who has skills that we can't explain. So, I mean, tell me, I'm not, I mean, I know, I know the Lucas archetype is, is built from several things, but tell me that's not part of what's happening here. Oh no, that's, that's <laughs> definitely what they were going for. I have no doubt. He's the, he's the mysterious trainer of our, of our hair gel, Luke Skywalker. <laughs> Yeah, you've got him, you've got the magical Lando Calrissian friend. I mean, you've got the whole Star Wars motif going on here. And 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 you've also got and let's not forget downplay this, the the old Asian man who's going to help me, that's Mr. Miyagi. I, oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. At this point I think there were two karate kid films or at least there was one. There may have the second one may have been a production, but you know, everybody was was crazy about that. And so, of course, we got to have an old, we got to have the old Japanese man come in and explain everything, because that's and to be connected, he's the guy that trained, uh, you know, hair gel Luke Skywalker Joe to be the killer warrior that he is, and that's ultimately what we'll learn that they roll that out as slowly as possible. But I don't yeah. think it's, it's not framed in a way that adds any suspense. No, they 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 don't do a good job of disguising it at all. Mm-mm. I mean, they pretty clearly, uh, Ricardo Montalban Ortega just says, we found this guy and I gave him a job because apparently he's a good gardener. <laughs> and it's like, well, okay, you found a random Japanese guy in your whatever country this is supposed to be that's clearly not Japan. <laughs> he's going to have to, he's going to come back and be something important later on. I mean, since he's not one of the ninjas and Black Star Ninja doesn't acknowledge him as someone he knows, that right. you're pretty much it's Joe or nobody. Yeah, he he's connected. You're obviously he's connected somewhere on the inside. You know, we're, we're just waiting to find out what. But Joe escapes, gets back, and gets thrown into another prison. Like this seems to be like a, a thing that Joe goes from being either in hot water with the ninjas that want to kill him, back to the army that wants to court martial and throw him in prison. <laughs> Yeah, he well, just goes from one cell to the next. Well, they're clearly angry that he saved that annoying daughter's life. <laughs> well, that and he's attracted to her, which of course, you know, the the uh say anything uh trope can't we can't have that, you know. So uh, you know, the the uh outsider. We cannot allow Bender to get with the, the rich girl. So in in this case, there's your <laughs> there's your breakfast club reference. So I mean, that's what this is. It it's because, uh, I mean, he gets up with Jackson and with Patricia and they try to explain things to her dad, the colonel, and what does he do? I'll make a phone call and get right on this. And what do they do? They bring people over there to arrest him and they blame all the thefts on him. And the sergeant is like loving this because he's like now i have my alibi sweet i'm like you didn't think about setting up a patsy beforehand no wonder you're an idiot yeah he's (laughs) clearly not uh there's clearly no brains behind this operation at all 
so he he's definitely not uh, thinking two moves ahead. He's he's a good uh, you know move behind Joe and basically everyone else. He he's the sergeant is only there to yell at people and to uh, look nervous in his little costume. No, well, it's because it's two sizes too small, and that's kind of the joke about him is that it just doesn't fit. So yeah, so it's uh, it's a strange occurrence to watch that little round man run around the screen. But you know, we, I've seen stranger stuff. But the night attack on the prison. Here's the thing I had to ask because you know Joe's going to have the fight coming from all corners at this point, and I'm like, what what is he doing with his hands before he you know, gets broken out of prison, breaks out of prison, and then goes into that big fight? Oh, that is something uh, the old gardener man taught him. Okay. It's, it's some sort of Zen mind focusing uh, technique to allow him to harness his ninja skills to their fullest potential. <laughs> well, it, it works because, again, he gets out of what seems about like impossible odds. And I love how we get like round one of him and the Black Star Ninja. That they get around to go at each other a little bit before we're going to get because you know it's going to come down to those two at some point. Like we can't have a satisfying film unless they square off against one another. And so they do give him a little round one before Joe ultimately you know, he gets away. And then Joe that's actually when Joe confronts uh, the colonel at that point and they try to arrest him again. I liked that uh, during the second one the uh, the Sarge randomly becomes a standard movie villain. Yes. It's instead of trying to pretend that he's not on the take, he shoves a dude out of the he shoves his like driver out of the jeep, and then uh, takes over the chase. And they're like shooting indiscriminately at Joe as he's trying to get away. You know, heedless <laughs> of every innocent bystander that may be living. In the vicinity of this road. Yes. There are rounds going off in every direction. I mean, look, the the main ninja even gets Patricia. He hits her in the neck with some kind of poison. I don't, I'm like, what was that all about? The the colonel's on your side. Like, what's that, what's that going to prove? Now you're just going to make him mad. <laughs> like, he's just turning the blind eye. He's not maybe an active participant in this whole uh, charade, but that's, that's not a good idea. No, you think you would want to not... Uh... You know, get your cover story mad at you. Yeah, I mean that's that's how your conspiracy unravels, people. So you got to get this stuff done right. Yeah, don't stab one of your conspirators' daughter in the neck with a poison dart. That's always a bad idea. Right, right. Of course, the colonel changes his mind, but it, you know the the thing is too late. Is it too late? We don't know. Joe, of course, tracks. Uh, the compound down and gets past the gate with ease. And then that's when he comes into the old man, you know, and it's time for Joe to, I wrote in quotes, remember. And I'm like, <laughs> remember? Is he going to mind melt with him now too? <laughs> you know? I think it's because they had some sort of hallucinogenic tea together. That's what it, I wondered what that was. Because again, I was going Karate Kid too when uh, not, uh, Miyagi and his woman, but uh, really more uh, uh, Daniel San and Kumiko were, uh, you know, right before the hurricane hit. So <laughs> trying try to uh, you know have a have a love scene with uh, uh, Peter Cetera music going down. So uh, you know all that was happening, but it was in flash forward because it's just Joe and the old man and. 
And I realized something else, too. I was like, there are some Morpheus Neo scenes from The Matrix that are directly aping this moment. (laughs) And I'm like, well, I know that's that's a ripoff of a lot of Kung Fu stuff, but clearly, you know, this wasn't lost on the Wachowskis either. You would you would hope not. I mean, (laughs) clearly, this is the spiritual forefather to The Matrix but with the, the cutting edge special effects. Like when the the Sarge's Jeep crashes and then yes. it, it blows up like it was a truck full of napalm. Yeah, I love the the, the crash trope, and then it, then it's you know it's ignited like a, like a bomb, like you say, it's it's full of napalm, and so we get this huge gas explosion. But of course, you know the old man, of course, underneath his bunk has this cache of ninja weaponry that he's just sort of been holding on to, waiting for Joe to wake up. And like that's that's when I started going like, look, I know I'm in, I know what kind of movie I'm in here, but you at least got to try to explain how this happens. How did he know Joe was there? Did he sneak in? Did he try to? get transferred there how did he know that someday joe would come across from that army base and need him i mean i how did he know any of this unless we're to believe that joe grew up really right there in you know unnamed country and just wound up stationed there i, I don't know that's i think it's just a, a, an enormous coincidence that this all happened mm-hmm. unless perhaps the old guy used his ninja magic to influence Joe's future and to get him to follow the path to end up in the fake Philippines. Well, let's talk about the ninja magic. Cause you brought that up a little bit ago. What is with the ninja magic? Well, uh, clearly um, ninjas are magical. <laughs> um, they, like the old guy can disappear in a puff of smoke and mm-hmm. teleport, apparently. Uh, <laughs> he can use his magical... Uh, LSDT to uh, reawaken Joe's memories of that training montage. Yes. Um, he's got that magical chi hand expression that he does. His his uh, Ronnie James Dio ninja hand gesture <laughs> that that helps Joe become live up to his true potential as the American ninja. Mm-hmm. And apparently he can just materialize these weapons out of thin air. Well, I mean, yeah, they just come out of nowhere. And I'm like, he's like the Ninja Q, you know, for a James Bond movie. He's just got all the stuff. And I, I didn't expect him to say, now bring it all back in one piece. When Joe walks <laughs> out, getting all of his all of his ninja gear. And, of course, you know, Joe goes after all the other ninjas. And this is to the point when the army arrives. Like, Jackson arrives, the other soldiers, and it's on. You know, I'm like, now this is constant. Yeah, Jackson – Jackson Jackson arrives like um, a black Schwarzenegger, shirtless and pumped up, sh- shooting a 50 caliber machine gun on the back of a jeep, being driven by that wormy guy uh, yes. who who's the comic relief friend, uh, and who is mostly pointless. Then Jackson gets into the fist fight with that giant uh, guy, who apparently can't be punched in the face and hurt. Uh, lots of stuff blows up. Uh, the colonel, I think it's the colonel who's like riding on top of a tank, yeah. shooting like a nine millimeter for no good reason. You're in a tank. Uh, clearly, you could have more firepower at your disposal than that. And to ride on top of a tank defeats the purpose of not. He's not even on top of the tank. He's like laying on the front of the tank. Yes. Right where people are going to be shooting at him. Yeah, I got problems with, with that for a minute. First off, if the colonel even rides into battle with you, which he wouldn't be, but even if he did, he would be in the most secure spot to be, and he'd be inside of that tank. 
let's say he was a tank commander. He would be inside of the thing. He would not be in the open air shooting his random Browning high power at people. That's not. That doesn't prove anything to anyone. I mean, he was he was practically like uh, doing ship's mast on the the, the head of the tank mm-hmm. in the front of the tank, or like ghost riding the tank. Yeah, it's very very strange. And the colonel ends up getting shot by Ortega. And I'm like, why does Ortega even hang around when it all starts going to hell there? Why is he just, I'm like, why stay and watch the fight? I guess he wanted to see Blackstar Ninja and Joe you know, go at it finally. Yeah, he says uh, his one of his flunkies is uh, after his two uh, money marks leave. <laughs> he, he one, of his, one of his flunkies is like, let's get to the helicopter. He's like, no, we have to wait for the ninja. Because apparently Blackstar Ninja is, is the only ninja trainer outside of Japan. And it's I guess so. Clearly, it's clearly the only ninja trainer that looks like Charles Bronson, and that's just something you can't let let get away for no good reason. This is true, and you know what I I said earlier: if the ninjas had lightsabers, my circle would be complete. Well, Blackstar Ninja does have a laser <laughs> that he uses. I'm like, what what is happening now? Now we have really jumped into Looney Tune territory that I was not expecting us to go to. I thought it would just be this martial arts showdown. But it's really not. Like, there was more action in the Jackson-Joe fight than there is in the Blackstar Ninja-Joe fight to me. Yeah, um, and he's got that random little uh, hand derringer or whatever it is with, the, like, the five-shot little... Yeah, that, that are all aimed in different directions. I'm like, that is an incredibly inaccurate weapon. <laughs> <laughs> incredibly pointless thing you just discharged. Exactly. You fired. Actually, you fired four firecrackers off of your fingers. I hope your hand was well protected, stuntman, because uh, that that was pretty awful. But yeah, he's got all. And I think what we're supposed to get is that Joe is the true warrior because he doesn't resort to all that kind of crap. But in the end, he's still just using the same ninja stuff everybody else has got. He's got the katana sword and the the uh, throwing stars and all all that stuff. I, I will give them credit. They did use every possible ninja weapon that they could they they had access to. Yes. I mean, you saw the katana, you saw the sai, you saw the nunchucks. The, yeah, they nunchucks. Were, yeah. The the spears. You saw the bow and arrow, and it's some crazy ancient bow and arrow. It's not even like a modern recurve bow. <laughs> yeah. It's like a, it's like a hand-carved bow made out of bamboo. It's something that, that like the wildlings would have had in Game of Thrones. Like it's it's very much part of that whole lexicon of weaponry. Oh yeah, very much so. And they even used some things as weapons that ninjas didn't use as weapons, like <laughs> yeah. their their climbing, uh, like the weighted chain with the that they would use to climb walls, or like the cl- the the cat claws. They yes. even used. That somehow they figured out a way to use palm spikes as a weapon. <laughs> it's a horribly ineffective, but they, they still used it as a weapon. They have that. And then, of course, don't forget the laser and the random gun for no reason at all. Oh, of but, course. Yeah. But in the end, a couple of chops in the, in the chones and it's over. You know, and, that, and that's that's the end of the Black Star Ninja, of course. And then I love how Joe, of course, jumps on the helicopter to grab Patricia and like this I don't know, diehard three-esque move to get our true lies really more like it. Grab her out of the helicopter while Jackson shoots the uh, the bazooka at the helicopter and blows the uh, model helicopter to smithereens. I was thinking uh, more along the lines, I was thinking cliffhanger. Ah. But 
<laughs> I could be wrong. I, you know, I hadn't thought about that in a long time. But uh, all I remember in that movie is uh, 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 John Lithgow telling Stallone he's a piece of work and Stallone telling him he's a piece of something else. And that's the only <laughs> film, that's the only thing I remember out of that old movie. That and the chick from Northern Exposure was in it. But you know, <laughs> another podcast for another day, perhaps. But now I love how you know, they get away, Jackson blows up the helicopter, and now it's, and that's it. Like, there's no go back to the base. There's no Joe and Patricia hook up, get married. Nothing. It's it just ends on the the theme song, and we just zoom out with the helicopter shot away from the base because that's and that is a Golden Globus trademark to end at the action scene. We don't need to explain anything else. We just blew everything up. Who needs any resolution to the plot? I mean, who needs a plot? Yeah. We had we had ninjas and we had some explosives and we had a very. Le- we had a government that's very lenient towards allowing us to blow up small chunks of their territory. Exactly. So. We, we wasted our, our budget on Tannerite, and we get this shot of Joe's eyes at the end with this look of resolve on his face as if to say, like, I wanted him to just use the line, I am the American Ninja. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, there, and there could have been like an 80s rock song, like, American Ninja! You know, I mean, we couldn't get one of those. That would have been awesome. <laughs> but... But well, they had to spend all that money to build an actual working handheld laser. This is true, and, and it served no purpose other than to cut down part of the gutters. But that's that's where it leaves us. And my question is, well, what about this screamed? Let's make a franchise. So, because I'm sitting there wondering, like, I know there's three more of these. I'm like, how are they going to pick up from any of this? Because I know. You know, the only person coming back besides Dudikoff is James. And I'm like, well, how are we just going to put him in different places? Because I didn't know. I knew nothing about the sequels, uh, you know, until going into it. So I was curious where it was going to go from here. So uh, they leave us in such a, I don't know, just a just a thud ending. And then everyone goes to jail for international (laughs) arms dealing. Exactly, yeah. I know people in the military, you have to explain every round you fire. So how are you going to explain the the fact that your base one has been turned into excite bike with bombs and blown to bits, (laughs) and then you took out this random, uh, you know, local thug for seemingly no reason? You, you murdered hundreds of local people wearing safari outfits and carrying Uzis. Yes, and you need to explain yourself at some point. But well, maybe they will in the sequels. We'll have to see. Well, Ron, I think we're at the part of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So what are yours for American Ninja? <sighs> Honestly... <laughs> Since I picked the movie, I would say I would definitely say it's worth seeing. Uh, there's some good action uh, scenes. There's a lot of terrible '80s cheese that I find really funny. Uh, the soundtrack is, of course, should have been a diamond record. It was. It's that good. Um, and everyone should see where the legend of Michael Dudikoff begins in the jungles of the Philippines, beating up extras and ski masks. <laughs> All right, so what's your popcorn rate? <laughs> I think I would go with a medium popcorn. It's not that bad. You know what? I walked into this thinking this whole series is going to be small popcorns. It's just a matter of are they like burnt or are they any good? And I, I'm going to say this first one is actually a medium popcorn. It is the very definition of your standard 80s schlock 
action, ghetto action movie. Like, it really is. And if for nothing more than just the unintentional humor of all of it, and and how you can laugh at it now, and how bad the acting is, and all of that stuff. I find this film utterly hilarious to to watch, and I I would say it is probably a lot better to watch with a group of folks. I think this could be a good bad movie night. Uh, for oh sure. yeah, for sure. Just you know, get yeah. a get a couple of cans of high explosives, and <laughs> everybody just hang out. Yeah, you know, you just need like a, a vat of like monster, uh, you know, energy drink and. You know your favorite uh, favorite set of peanuts, and you got it. You got a whole weekend. You know, and you don't even have to pay for it. Hook your Kindle up to the TV and just flip on YouTube, and there it is. So I'm gonna go media popcorn though, because again, going knowing what I was going in for, it was actually a lot better than what I expected. I had a lot of fun with it. It's not great, but it, it's you know for 80s action fair of of its kind, it's actually okay. It was it wasn't that bad, but I have absolutely no expect. I couldn't have lower expectations going forward for the series, especially knowing that they're all subtitled like that to me is always like well that's that's when you get a bad sign because you're already trying to tell me the plot doesn't explain anything so we got to make it in the title for you so and so i'm curious to see where we get with parts two through four that that seems that seems like a pretty fair assessment but you know they did increase the budget for part two i mean <laughs> there's a lot more explosions to be had and we'll get to that on the next show Folks, thanks for joining us on this latest episode of Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com. Click on the link for movies, and you can find all the past series that we've done and you know, keep up with this one. You can also find links to our Facebook and Twitter pages and link to the iTunes feed so you can you know, subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review there. On the Continuous Play page, you can find links to the Fabish Factor, the general film discussion podcast, and television discussion podcast hosted by Kurt Fabish and several others. They're talking about Game of Thrones. They talk about The Wire. They talk about top films of 1989, all that kind of stuff there. And then, of course, the link to The Art of Slaying, the seven seasons of Buffy the Vampire Slayer retrospective that Brian and I um, have done recently. And, Ron, tell folks how they can uh, follow your writing on the Internet. Uh, you can find me at popfi.com. I post there usually once a day, sometimes twice a day. It'll just be random stuff that I find amusing or weird. Um, denofgeek.com, and that's about it. All right. Well, folks, till next time, from Ron, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Fanstrip. Thank you for joining us. Remember the day I found you. All content used or discussed in this podcast is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Therefore, ask you to accompany me to the police station to answer several serious questions.